This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue on in James with more grace. Resist, if the Lord wills, warning to the rich, and patience in suffering. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. The hymn, May God Bestow on Us His Grace, the hymn of the day for this coming Sunday, according to the three-year lectionary, we see there in the gospel reading in John chapter 2, Jesus cleansing the temple. After he had done that, the Jews demand a sign from him, and he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews object. They say, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You will raise it up in three days. Well, of course, Jesus was talking about the temple of his body and about his death and resurrection. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this Monday afternoon, February the 26th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We'll be looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer. Jennifer Lall of the Center for Bioethics and Culture Network will join us to discuss an Alabama Supreme Court ruling that frozen embryos are children, its implications for IVF. Then we'll get an update on the 2024 presidential race with Mark Hemingway of Real Clear Investigations. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, welcome. Great to be back, Todd. You say that you find this coming Sunday and its propers a little puzzling. Why is that? Well, I admit it. I am not perfect. I can't see everything. Usually I uh, think I have a knack for finding the connections on Sundays. Uh, The Scripture interprets the Scriptures always, and we know that they can't be broken. So it shouldn't be that hard. But I do admit, I'm puzzled for this Sunday. We've got a number of wonderful scripture passages. So the Old Testament is the Ten Commandments, obviously central to our faith. This is the summary of the law as we teach it. We've got one of the most beautiful passages talking about how our mission as Christians, as the church, particularly as pastors and apostles, is to preach Christ in him crucified and to rejoice in, well, what the world considers very foolish, but what we know is the true wisdom and power of God, his death for our salvation and his resurrection with it. And then our gospel reading is going to be Jesus driving out the money changers in the temple and all the animals and being challenged by the Jews and giving a very enigmatic answer, an answer that we'll see ends up being one of the charges they kind of make stick against him for his trial, if you can call it a trial, 
that he said he will tear down this temple and in three days rebuild it. But John, of course, tells us this is about his body, that he will in fact die and rise again. So all fantastic passages, but I'm not seeing immediately how they all fit together. We'll do our best and we'll try and let the Psalms, as always, be the connecting glue in between. So one that does have a connection in terms of its quotation is the intro, which is Psalm 69. That's right. It begins, zeal for your house has consumed me. And we'll hear Jesus' disciples remember this quotation later in the gospel. Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let the flood sweep over me. The deep swallow me up. Let not them do that, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. So we'll see. Jesus doesn't quote this directly, but his disciples, it says, remember later after he has risen from the dead, this passage, and they consider this the fulfillment of that, that the Lord is consumed with zeal for his father's house. And how does that actually play out? Well, we'll see that it plays out by letting the reproach fall on Christ, just as the psalm says. Now, it falls on Jesus in two ways, as we see today. It falls on him because those who are despising the Lord, those who are cluttering up the temple with money changing, that's an interesting point to make. We'll talk about that when we get to the gospel reading. Those who despise the Father also despise Jesus. And I suppose we can say it's the same for us. He says that no disciple can expect to be above his master, but will be like him. So if they have despised our Lord Jesus Christ, they will also despise his Christians. But all the more, the reproaches fall on Jesus, as we've heard a couple Sundays ago as well. They fall on him because he is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. He's the one, the Lamb of God, who bears the sins of the world. And actually, if we're reading in John's gospel, that will come right before our gospel reading today. The rest of Psalm 69, I think we should hear today in the voice of Jesus himself, that he is now surrounded by his opponents, by the opponents of his father as well, and they're beginning the grilling of him. This is almost as if he's on trial already, and they'll bring this back up when he does go on trial. So he prays, as he always does in faith, asking for his father to deliver him. And that is fulfilled finally, not by preventing him from facing suffering, but that the zeal for his house will in fact consume him. He will be the immolated sacrifice there on the cross for our salvation. And when he is raised from the dead that third day, that'll be when at last the Lord has delivered him. This is the same uh, pattern that we see in Psalm 31 as well. Into your hands I commit my spirit, Jesus prays. And uh, indeed, the faithful God does deliver him three days later. The Collect talks about God's mercy. O God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
when we get to year C in a year from now, we'll see that the Lord's mercy really is kind of the focal point of that whole Lenten season in year C. This collect then I think will make the most sense. Now, this collect comes from the Book of Common Prayer from uh, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, and originally it was placed on Lent 2. It came into our use on Lent 3 in Lutheran worship and Lutheran Book of Worship, but it's quite different, actually, than the original collect. So it's it's a puzzle to me as well that I've been trying to dig up. It would, in year A, be paired with the woman at the well. And I think you can see how that's kind of a calling of this woman who had uh, been in sin now to, to find her solace in Christ. Also, uh, in year C, we hear a call to repentance at the site of disasters like the tower that had fallen, the massacre that Pilate had undertaken, and we're called to repent likewise, lest we too perish. But here in year B, it makes less sense to me, except perhaps if we're able to see that our Lord's zeal for his father's house is also a zeal for us. He is calling those Jewish people back to the truth. You see this a bit in Psalm 50, where the Lord famously says, you know, I'm not hungry up here. If I was hungry, I wouldn't ask you. I own all the cattle already. That's not what the sacrifices are for. In fact, I want you to trust in me, and I want you to live in love accordingly to that trust. So the Lord is always calling them back to true faith and to true belief as well. In any case, though, the prayer in and of itself, as we have it, really is an excellent one, and I commend it to our listeners. It's a prayer for those who've fallen away from the faith in whatever way that may be. Perhaps it's by false belief or practice, or perhaps it's simply by being a lapsed Christian, being one of those various seeds from the parable of the sower that is no longer seeming, to our eyes at least, to be producing any fruit. And it shows us the way back to Christ always. And it's perfect for Lent with penitent hearts. That means hearts that are repentant. Lent is always the time where we hear the cry of the prophets, return to the Lord your God. Consider and mend your ways and return to the Lord and seek out his mercy because he is gracious and merciful and ready always to forgive. Likewise, that we would do it with steadfast faith. And steadfast faith takes on a disciplinary, enduring character in Lent. We're here in a time of spiritual discipline, perhaps with fasting, certainly with hearing the word more diligently. And so we're urged to press on, to continue in this faith, not to lose heart and fall away from it in a week time, uh, but to carry on even to the end, uh, run this race to the finish as we hear in our gradual. So with endurance, with discipline, bearing also with the reproach of those who, like they reproach Jesus, also reproach us. And then it comes to rest in the unchangeable truth of the word of God which I think does fit best with our psalm for today, Psalm 19, that extols the word of God as that which is sweeter than honeycomb, more precious to us than gold. And this word is unchangeable. It's the thing that doesn't change at all. It's the thing that is able to bring us when we have changed and gone astray back to him, back to what is firm and solid and secure, the word of our Lord. You say that this Old Testament reading, Exodus 20, 1 through 17, is a little unusual. 
Well, I, I am struggling maybe to find how it fits, other than that we uh, understand the Ten Commandments as a summary pedagogically for the entire law and commandments of God. It defines what love is, it shows us our sins, and therefore I suppose it's never far from anything, but of all the readings to pair it with, this is an interesting one for sure. But we begin Exodus 20 at verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land and that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or his male servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So there we have it, all the Ten Commandments, not just the short version from the Catechism, but all of the details in between as well. We'll come back to those. I should have noted on Lent 1, that we in the LCMS have departed from the Revised Common Lectionary and also from what the Roman Catholic Church's lectionary have for the first Sunday of Lent. There they have Noah. They have the promise to Noah, the covenant to Noah in the rainbow paired with the temptation of Christ on the first day. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church also has Peter's epistle where he talks about that this was prefiguring baptism, which is a, actually a very beautiful passage and, and probably quite fruitful with the temptation. If we had that, I think it would be much clearer to understand maybe why this Exodus passage shows up here in the middle of Lent. And that would be because we'd have a nice progression of patriarchs, Noah, Abraham last week, now Moses here with the Ten Commandments. We'd also have a better glimpse of kind of the theme of covenant that is unifying all of these Old Testament readings running through the year B Lent. So next Sunday actually is maybe the odd one out in that case. It's the serpent on the pole, how Moses by the bronze serpent recalls them to the Lord and how they are healed. But even this is a promise that the Lord fulfills and, and I suppose cut into that bronze promises to provide them a uh, way of rescue from the snake bites. So uh, as a result, there's not maybe a great connection to the gospel, but a nice connection to the Old Testaments that came previous. Although I will say this, as I was listening again and reading it, there is something very important in verse 5. 
we as Lutherans know this best as the conclusion to the commandments. That's where Luther puts it kind of to sum up all the commandments. He does this because uh, he, he, this is the part about the carved image, which leads the Lord to say that I'm a jealous God, punishing those who uh, hate me, but showing love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments, that this is the summary. So we know that the first commandment carries through all of them. We should fear and love God so that we do not do any of the things that are forbidden by the commandments. And then this is maybe the conclusion to say, we got to take this seriously. The Lord is not joking around when he gives these commandments. But the word there is that he is a jealous God. And in Hebrew, I believe as well as in Greek, this word jealousy is very close to the word zealously. You can hear the similarity even in English, uh, but but it's it's this urgent defensive, rising up as we see our Lord with the whips in the temple doing uh, for what is true, for what is right, for what belongs to him. Uh, So Christ rises up zealously for the house of his father. Likewise, we see that the Lord is a jealous, zealous God for his people, rising up even when they have abandoned him to defend them, to rescue them, to bring them out of Egypt, to renew this covenant, even as many times it seems as the Old Testament people defy and break this covenant. So perhaps that's why this passage was chosen to go along with the zeal of the Lord that we see. I suppose we could discuss a lot, Todd, about the Ten Commandments and uh, what's pertinent about them. As we consider Lent a time of penitence, for us as Lutherans, it is, I think, one of Luther's great insights that the way we rightly know our sins and we rightly ought to consider ourselves introspectively is not to dwell there forever as if by looking inside we're going to find the way to God, uh, but by looking inside of us with a clear light like the Word of God, then at last something good can come of it. So with the law, we're going to shine that law into us to know our sins, to be exposed. So Luther has in the Catechism that we will know our sins by considering our places in life according to the Ten Commandments. So for those who are perhaps also making better use of individual confession, absolution, those who are considering as they fast, as they give alms, as they attend and hear the word of God more, where they have fallen short of the glory of God, use the Ten Commandments as your touchstone to see how very concretely we have sinned against God and against our neighbors. And we'll have to then look to Christ and the promise that he has in clearing the temple so that he can be the savior of the world, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins, yes, of us and of all the world. I would also suggest that the, and I don't know that this was in the mind of those who were crafting the lectionary in this case, but another way that those commandments fit in is because we're seeing from Jesus in this John 2 gospel a rare expression of wrath. And to perhaps remind us that his wrath, in every case, is divine wrath and that it is a holy wrath. And what better way to bring that home than to remind the congregation that God's holiness has a shape to it. It's not a free-form holiness. It's shaped like the Ten Commandments. Certainly. And we know that right after this in Exodus 20, as we've mentioned before, the people's reaction to this is not, oh, cool, here's some rules. It's Moses, if God's going to talk to us like this, 
we're going to die. I mean, like you said, his holiness, his purity, not arbitrary, but his purity is often joined to his wrath when it confronts us as sinners. I think we'll see this dynamic actually at play in our psalm that we're about to get to, Psalm 19, which is placed here to be a bit of a commentary on the Old Testament. We are looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. We will get to that psalm right after this. How did God address the Gentile nations through the prophet Isaiah? What is God's message to his own people regarding both judgment and consolation? And how does Isaiah's divine message apply to us today? Find out in the new Concordia Commentary on Isaiah, chapters 13 through 27. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah 13 through 27. You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's seal with the Reformation solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., crossweh.com slash LPR. Christological, creedal, confessional. You're listening to Issues Etc. For more than 100 years, Emmanuel Lutheran Church has been confessing the faith, proclaiming the gospel, administering the sacraments, and caring for our neighbors in the city of Houston, Texas. At Emmanuel, you will find services using the liturgy, lectionary, and hymns of the church, and Bible studies devoted to understanding God's Word. We also offer a day school for students aged 18 months through pre-kindergarten. Emmanuel is located at 306 East 15th Street, Houston, Texas. You can find us on the web at emmanuelhouston.org. Teaching your student to read should not be complicated. Memoria Press's phonics uses common sense and the classical approach with their First Start Reading program for the most effective and efficient way to teach your child how to read. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Within the book of Isaiah, the promise of the bodily resurrection unto life can be connected with the promise of the suffering servant, which depicts him as bodily dying and bodily rising again, also as to win justification for the multitudes. Elsewhere in the scriptures, one thinks of several related passages that speak of the bodily resurrection. The bodily resurrection was the hope of Israel, not the hope of the Gentile lands, and not the hope of the ancient Greek or Romans. That's from the Issues Etc., Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah, chapters 13 through 27. Find out more about this book at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040, and ask for the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah, chapters 13 through 27. 
We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, the psalm is Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The just decrees of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 19 is quoted quite frequently in the New Testament. It's one of the psalms I think every Christian ought to know or be familiar with. It's in two parts. The first part is about the Lord's word in nature. You can maybe hear Haydn's uh, example of this, and we know that there is a certain truth to the statement that we can see the evidence of God in creation. Now, we might not see what his disposition toward us is, although it's interesting that we so often use this analogy of this bridegroom to speak about Christ himself coming to, quite literally as the bridegroom, to disclose that to us. So creation is one source where we see God speaking to us and testifying to himself. But the second half of the psalm, which maybe is more of our focus today, is the written word, the spoken word, the prophetic and apostolic word of God that reveals him quite clearly, his Torah, you might say. And this word, these succession of different synonyms for word, law, command, precept, testimony, even just decree, these really are a full range of what we often very blandly call the word of God or the Bible. It is the law, the the commandments, but it's also the gospel, the just decrees that declare us innocent and righteous. It's guidance for life. This is what would actually be good. It's rebuke. You've fallen into danger. Return before it's too late. It's the source of life as you hear. This is the desirable, enduring matter is the word of God that we ought to seek out. I think it's helpful to note the order. So we have a beautiful little succession of short statements, right? The law of God is perfect, reviving the soul. It's sure, so the simple can be made wise. It's right, which is rejoicing the heart. It's pure, it enlightens those who are in darkness. And the summary of that is this is better than gold, better than honey. But then notice the order, right? So after this good purposes of God's instruction and teaching and life, after extolling then the law of God and the Lord's word as a whole, 
quickly comes the response of David, the psalmist, uh, whoever it may be, which is a response that hears this warning and acknowledges, in fact, my errors as well as my sins and the need for the Lord's rescue. Well, the law always accuses, as Lutherans are fond of saying, this is easy to see in this passage. Uh, This is also our proof text, by the way, for our position that in private confession, it isn't necessary to enumerate all sins in order to receive all the forgiveness. That is, if you should forget something or fail to mention something that that kind of renders, you know, it's a big asterisk hanging over the absolution that the pastor might speak to you. Impossible, because as it says right here, who can discern his errors? Nobody can. There are, in fact, faults that we are not aware of, just as there are presumptuous sins that gain dominion over us or would threaten to do that. Notice the attitude and the disposition of this psalmist, who obviously is righteous, who obviously is delighting in the word of the Lord as well as his creation, who wants to be acceptable in his sight, who wants to no longer be simple or dark or dead, but wants to be alive and active. And yet he is aware that sin is great, that only the Lord can purify and protect and keep us from faults. Only the Lord can lead us in the way of righteousness. And this is the right way to understand both the law and the gospel, that it is a beautiful and enlivening, energizing thing that the Lord has forgiven our sins, that now the Christian is able to approach the law of God, even those Ten Commandments, knowing that, of course, they accuse me, they they show all the things that I failed at, and yet the Lord has given them not to destroy us, but to test us, as Moses says, and that we might make a beginning in good works and in the righteous life that the Lord has laid out for us. This final prayer, last verse 14, often gets detached. Sometimes you hear pastors use it at the beginning of their sermons. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart or our hearts even now, the whole congregation together, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In context, we see that our prayer is to be founded in good words and in good works as the Lord words requires and teaches. So that's what it's asking for. Let my words be acceptable. Let my meditation of my heart and therefore all of the actions I would take out of that heart also be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. How does that happen? I mean, I do think there's a reason this gets taken out of its context because it does stand as a nice proverb, as a nice compact statement. It's because the Lord is our rock, our firm, certain, unchangeable Lord, as we've said in the collect, but also that he is our redeemer, that his grace stands over us, that he has in fact forgiven our sins, which is what the only thing that can turn sinners of some use to him and then send them out in his word to live a life that matches the righteousness that the Lord has declared in us. We will be looking at the epistle reading for this coming Sunday, according to the three-year lectionary with Sean Denzer, right after the break. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue on in James with more grace. Resist. If the Lord wills, Warning to the rich 
and patience in suffering. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for the word of the Lord endures forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. This month marks the 50th anniversary of the walkout of faculty and staff from the Concordia Seminary St. Louis campus in 1974. If you've ever wondered about Seminex or the walkout and what they were all about, now's your chance to learn more. Pick up the February issue of The Lutheran Witness. You can purchase that at CPH. Visit cph.org witness or learn more at our website, witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com. LutherAcademy.com. Your daily Lutheran Bible class. You're listening to Issues Etc. Evidence for Evolution? This is Ken Ham inviting you to spend spring break with us at the Ark Encounter. All last week, we looked at God's Word as we explored the question Did humans evolve from ape like creatures? And we saw that it's impossible to add evolution to the Bible. So, why do some Christians think we should try? Well, many think the evidence for evolution is overwhelming, so Christians must accept it. But when it comes to looking at the past, your starting point matters. You see, if you start with evolution, you'll interpret the evidence in the present through that lens. But if you start with the Bible's history, you'll look at exactly the same evidence, but very differently. And that's what we're going to do all this week as we interpret evidence based on the foundation of God's Word. Tour the life-size Noah's Ark and discover the truth of God's Word and the Gospel in Northern Kentucky. Plan your visit today at AnswersRadio.com. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. We are looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary, the third Sunday in Lent. We're here at the epistle reading, 1 Corinthians 1, 18-31. What's going on here? Paul is going to be doing his explanation of how the Lord's cross is foolish-looking and yet is, of course, the great moment of salvation, the heart of our faith. Likewise, that then gives some comfort to us who appear foolish and weak in this world, to be confident that if we have the Lord's great power, it doesn't matter if the rest of the world looks at us and says the Christian church or any individual Christian has no great power. And we'll see that it definitely connects to what we see in the gospel reading. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, verse 18, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. 
but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. God made our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, we'll see this happen a little bit in the gospel today, that Christ's answer to the Jews' question, which seems a little cryptic in the moment, is in fact that his cross and his resurrection are what are able to overturn even the temple and to do it with God's approval. So the Jews seek signs. We're going to see that today. They ask exactly for that in the gospel, that Jesus show a sign that proves that he has the authority to drive everybody out of the temple and and stop the usual business of sacrifice. We're not going to hear much about the Greeks today, but you can imagine how the Greeks are renowned for supposedly discovering philosophy, and they get maybe a little more credit than they deserve for math and all of these other things, but they're known for their wisdom. Socrates, very famous philosophers, and yet they never came to the wisdom that God has now shown in saving the world through dying on a cross. Together then with that miracle, is that endurance through suffering, bearing reproach, bearing shame, as we heard in our intro it, that this is also the way that God brings his own Christians to himself. And that is about the most foolish thing you could possibly imagine. seems like the ones who the gods would favor, if you're a Greek, are the Herculean heroes of the story, not the ones who bear reproach gladly, trusting in a promise that's given for the future. The proclamation of the crucifixion, the proclamation of the death of Jesus Christ, is central to the Christian faith. This is what the apostles, Paul in particular, is interested in preaching. This is what we believe in and trust in. It's what we adorn our necks and our churches and our altars with is images of the cross, images of the crucified, images of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This really is the glory and the triumph of God. It doesn't appear as such. It doesn't look like a victory. I do think the hymn that we're going to sing on Good Friday, Sing My Tongue, the Glorious Battle, is a wonderful and beautiful irony that they're extolling the cross as this battle banner, this flag of victory, when we know it's this instrument of death. That irony is intentional. That's exactly what John's gospel is always putting forward to us. It's what we as Christians love to see. It's what Paul's talking about here. It's not a salvation that is achieved by might or wisdom or special status, neither by Christ himself nor by us, right? So, of course, Jesus doesn't come mighty, trouncing the Romans like a Caesar would. He comes humble, riding in on a donkey. 
But the same is true for us, right? It's not that we overcome our vices and become great saints that uh, stand before the world and surpass the rest of men. It's that the Lord forgives our sins. It's that through much patience, with humility, trusting in him, that he brings us along in his train and begins good works in us as well, but usually not the sort of world-changing, world-dominating works that people might expect or want to see. He's not building a kingdom of this world. He's building a kingdom that is not of this world. And Paul draws attention to that here by showing that the cross was his greatest moment, as it were. And that's why he says kind of rhetorically, right, all the foolish, piffle things that God thought were actually smarter than men. So why would you look down on the cross? This is the great work of God. This does connect with our gospel reading because we're going to see that the zeal that Jesus has is for his father's house, his temple, the place where the sacrifices are made. And what was the purpose of all those sacrifices that had been long corrupted? It was the salvation of his people. It was to give them righteousness, sanctification, redemption. That was the Lord's true wisdom. It wasn't to give them a means by which they would earn or have something to boast about in themselves, to say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. No, it was always to repair to Christ, to cling to him, to see that he is the one who is saving us, and therefore to take even the foolish things he does to heart, because he know, we know he does it for them. The calling of God to faith is timely. Perhaps there are new Christians entering the church this Lent. Perhaps you in the pew who are listening and looking forward to this Sunday are aware of some of them, get to know them, help them to understand this, help them to see that you as an existing, maybe a prominent even member of your church, are not prominent because you're more wealthy than them, not prominent because you have a better pedigree, but because you, like all other Christians, have received the great mercy of God. Uh, a call to the Christian church, a call to faith, is always a call away from boasting in ourselves and rather to trust in Christ as the source of life. And learning to know him then even deeper as the wisdom of God, as how his suffering and his endurance with patience is actually a wise way of living. Uh, how he has declared us to be righteous and therefore we pursue righteousness. How he is our cleansing and sanctification and therefore we are glad to see the Holy Spirit at work in us, uh, making a beginning in that sanctification ourselves. And again, that he is our redemption, that he has shed his blood, that if we want to boast in anyone, it has to boast in him. And you have to boast in him particularly at his cross. Maybe last, we should just say, especially as we come to our gospel reading, which has not only the cross, but also the resurrection in view, there's no way that you can pit in Paul the cross against the resurrection. When he says, we preach Christ in him crucified, um, of course, we're talking about the Christ who is risen from the dead, who is, uh, if you want a sign, you had one there, right? But the you don't get that without passing through the cross. And that's the moment where we see the Lord uh, working under this greatest irony that while he appears weak and foolish to the world, he is actually accomplishing the great salvation that no man by his wisdom or strength could do. I'm Todd Wilkin, your link to issues, etc. We're looking forward to the third Sunday in Lent, according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer, director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and a graduate of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, 
Find out about studying for the vocations of pastor or deaconess at ctsfw.edu or by calling 1-800-481-2155, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. When we come back, we'll get into the gradual and the verse. What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. More topics, more guests, more Jesus. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. through the propers for this coming Sunday, the third Sunday in Lent, according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship at the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, what are the gradual and the verse for this coming Sunday? Oh, perfect for today, right? Come, let us fix our eyes on that cross that we're preaching. Come, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the wisdom and the redemption and the sanctification, all of it, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Despising the shame kind of means two things. It means both to look askance at it, but nevertheless to endure it. He did embrace the cross, but he did not consider the shame so shameful that he refused to bear it. This begins, as we'll see in the gospel reading already today, already in the temple, that he is bearing the reproach and the shame of those who reproach his father's house, who who sully it in any way. But he does this gladly in order that he might redeem us. That's the wisdom of God, is not to boast in himself, uh, but to redeem us by his, his suffering. We don't often see the gradual and the Alleluia verse kind of backed up against each other, uh, but I think it is uh, pretty fruitful on this day, uh, if we were to do that, it, to see that we're adding on to the gradual one little verse that applies to today. Because the verse is, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It's the quote from Jesus in the gospel, the sign that he offers to the Jews, talking about his death and his resurrection. Uh, now, see that as an addition to the Hebrews passage. He founds, he perfects our faith, he endures the cross, and then uh, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
this is happening. This is destroying the temple of his body, but raising it up new again and bringing us into it, which will be fine as we look in now to John chapter 2. So take us in there to that gospel reading, John 2, 13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Psalm 69. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. We can add a little verse 2 here if you want it. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Really important in John's gospel, this event. It's right after the wedding at Cana. I know that's called his first public sign, but this is much more public to be in the temple. It's his first visit to Jerusalem in John's gospel, and there are a number that follow. In the synoptics, this clearing of the temple seems to occur in Holy Week as the final event, kind of before he begins teaching in the temple and they plot all the more to kill him. Perhaps that's a theological placement by John. Perhaps there were two cleansings. Some scholars have different opinions on that. But in any case, it sets this mission of Jesus at the forefront in John's gospel uh, and points us right from the beginning to his passion and to his resurrection. Now, it might be that Jesus clears out the trade and the commerce uh, because these things have taken the place of what the temple is for, right? Prayer. Some people have thought maybe they were taking up the Gentile court so that nobody else, none of the God-fearers were able to worship. It's possible. And maybe all those things are cluttering, even though they're part of it, cluttering and taking away the focus on the sacrifices themselves and the words of God that are being spoken in connection with them. But that's the funny part about this. The animals, even the exchange of money, are necessary for the temple to be working. So how is Jesus clearing this out zealously and saying, you're, you're misusing this temple? The point has to be not only that he's coming to restore the original temple sacrifices to their pure performance, but in fact that he is coming to put himself in the midst of them as the new sacrifice and the new temple that is going to supersede and, and as we know, really was the foundation all along of these sacrifices. Remember, in John's gospel, we just heard, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why Jesus comes, not only to simply restore the temple and bring it back to Moses' standards, but in fact to fulfill it and be himself the true temple of God. The sign that Jesus gives is the one that we're going to see at the end of the gospel and of Lent as well. 
it indicates both that he is able to do such a miraculous sign that he can vindicate all of his actions, including driving stuff out of the temple, but also indicates that he is the greater temple. He's bigger than it. He's its replacement. Or like I said, maybe it's better to say he's its true instantiation. He is the body that casts the shadow of all of the Old Testament sacrifices, as Hebrews says. In all of this, hopefully the words of Malachi are in your mind. They're really being fulfilled here at the beginning of John's gospel. When the Lord suddenly comes to his temple, when he comes with the refiner's fire, uh, like a fuller, like a cleanser, uh, to come and clear out those things so that, again, the hearts of fathers and sons can be turned to one another. That all happens on the heels of the proclamation of John the Baptist, the voice in the wilderness the one who goes before the Lord to prepare his way. Then we have Jesus, uh, uh, well, we don't have Jesus quoting this. We have the apostles remembering it. And I think the context shows they were remembering this after the fact, this passage from Psalm 69, zeal for your house has consumed me. Um, this Psalm, by the way, uh, not only talks, as we saw in our intro at selection ver selected verses, talks about the reproach that the Lord bears, the shame that Christ we see is receiving. But this also has the very famous prophecy of the gall and the vinegar that they gave him to drink, which we know is fulfilled at his cross. At the very end, at least of the first cutting, if you take the short version, we have a marvelous thing that after it was all over, after the resurrection, in the light of the Holy Spirit and in the light of Easter, the apostles did understand and they remembered what was said even back in the temple, and they believed the scripture and the word that he had spoken. Uh, this is a marvelous saying to have these together so that we would see that the scriptures and the word of Jesus are in no way divided. You could say that Jesus and his word is fulfilling the scriptures. This, by the way, is what we mean in the creed when we say, he suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. Sometimes our pause makes it sound like we're almost casting doubt on it. Well, that's what the Bible says. According to the scriptures, this happened. According to facts, who knows? That's not at all the meaning. The meaning is it happened just as the scriptures predicted. And this then matches with what we've heard before, and we'll continue to hear these predictions that Jesus gave about his death and resurrection, that even these are being fulfilled by what he does. Last of all, the little addendum, if I could just speak briefly about it, is a very important transition to Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus at night and is somewhat rebuked, sent away wanting, and doesn't appear till the end of the gospel again. But it says here that Jesus knew all people, he knew what was in the heart of man, and that's what led him not to entrust himself to the people. Maybe this is our connection back to those Ten Commandments. Uh, what is in the heart of man is not zealous jealousy for the word of God. It is much more often and the corruption of sin, the zeal for self, the boasting that Paul talked about in ourselves rather than in the Lord. Jesus has come not to indulge this, not to entrust himself to that and imagine that everybody who approaches him comes with a good purpose. Neither should we, by the way, imagine that. That's just not taking original sin seriously. That's what Jesus is recognizing is in the heart of man. 
But the Lord has come to remedy this. That's why he must be the sacrifice. No other creature, but only Christ, true God and true man, could be the sacrifice that actually remedies sin right down to its core. Finally, the hymn of the day, May God Bestow Upon Us His Grace, about a minute. Well, the Lord causes his face to shine on us. He's the one who guides us to life eternal. This is a psalm that not only acknowledges the Lord as Savior and Redeemer, but also acknowledges the Lord leading us in the way that is right, and even asking that others would recognize this as well and be converted to the faith. So I think this hymn probably connects best with our collect, where we call those who have gone astray to return to the Lord, to receive his blessing through penitent hearts and steadfast faith, to return to what is unchangeable, the word of God, which all point us to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, thank you as usual. You're welcome. Peace be with you. When we return in Hour 2 of Issues Etc., we'll start out with Jennifer Lawl of the Center for Bioethics and Culture Network talking about an Alabama Supreme Court ruling that frozen embryos are children. Stay tuned. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.